Welcome to the Sun-Dried Tomatoes podcast. I am your host and creator, Anthony Ozzo. And if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can also find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Uh, please follow, download, and subscribe where applicable. Uh, for those listening to the audio version, uh, there is a video version, of course, like I just said, on my Sun-Dried Tomatoes YouTube channel please go and subscribe there as well um, and check out other shows that I will be you know, featuring sports and brewing and food and music, uh, you know, including my show Random Reactions, which is also on IGTV, uh, where I take a variety of arbitrary stories uh, from, from the past week and uh, react to them in my own way, including, you know, things like making ketchup and playing Atari games. You know, there'll be a second season coming out later this year as well. You can follow me on Instagram at uh, eclectic underscore Yozo. That's E-C-L-E-C-T-I-C underscore I-O-Z-Z-O. I will have, uh, you know, updates and teasers and short videos that, that kind of go with my YouTube account from time to time. Uh, plus, you might be able to get to know me a little better. Today, I am joined uh, by a very special guest. We welcome the brewmaster of Union Corners Brewery in Madison, Wisconsin, my friend and two-time fantasy football league champion, John Puchalski, a.k.a. Pooch, for those that know him a little better. Uh, I plan to, you know, talk about brewing and Pooch's journey to, to be the brewmaster at Union Corners. But first, I wanted to talk a little fantasy football a bit with the 2021 NFL draft just happening. Uh, and the real mock draft season uh, now beginning. And that's American football for anyone listening in Europe. First of all, you know, I am the commissioner of a very fun competitive league that we do. We call it the quest for the green ball named after our amazing trophy. And Pooch knows about that trophy uh, that I actually put together with an old lamp and decorative metal candy cup uh, so that we can drink and celebrate when we win. It's pretty fun. And as you can see, Pooch is bringing over the Green Bull right now. He didn't win the championship last time, but no one seems to be picking it up lately, especially with the pandemic going on. So, you know, he he gets to keep uh, keep watch of it and uh, make sure that it's all good. But, you know, Pooch and I actually started the league with another friend of ours who's not involved anymore. But, uh, you know, while there have been some revolving team owners, uh, most of the teams are managed by players that have been around several years. So we kind of got some rivalries going, things like that. We started it in 2015 and uh, we'll be going on our seventh year, which is pretty insane to think about. You know, I've made uh, private videos for us in the past, uh, coming up with a theme for the season and, and creating home and away schedules and things like that. But I actually plan on uh, sharing our seventh season with all of you on my YouTube channel uh, so that you can get into our storied history and learn all about us and uh, you know to be honest if you play in any fantasy football leagues you'll probably see some things on, on my videos and from our league that might help you in your own leagues as well so you know just a fun way to do that we have player records of course and, and fun weekly awards that we do and while I sadly have yet to win the coveted green bowl pooch here is actually won twice <laughs> he was our inaugural season champion and he also won a second time in our third season uh, he's one of just four people to win, you know, a Green Bowl title. And uh, he's tied for the uh, league record with two championships with our other league member, Katie Brown, in our history. So without further ado, I bring you the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. John Puchalski. What is going on, Pooch? What's going on with you? A whole lot uh, today and thankfully a pretty quiet Tuesday. <laughs> 
So I have to start uh, to talk about the NFL draft here for a bit. I don't know how much you saw. I'm guessing you know about the Jaguar stuff. So, you know, rookies can have a huge impact in fantasy, of course, uh, from some of your draft picks and, and guys that you've picked up and just got people you've seen in our league, you know, especially later in the season if you stash them correctly. Uh, but like myself, you're also a Jacksonville Jaguars fan. So whether or not these first round picks mean anything to fantasy still be seen. But how excited are you for the Trevor Lawrence era? I mean, I'm sure a lot of those staff were licking their chops when they heard, oh, we got first round, first pick. You know, you, you obviously got to make a big splash. You got to get the best player for your value. Um, I you know, hope that their pick lines up with whatever strategy they you know, did. I was a huge fan of their defense, so um, you know that's what I was hoping for. But I was not doing a lot of research on this particular draft class, um, so I couldn't tell you uh, what what uh, what they're really lousy with. But um, there's a lot of excitement. I gotta tell you that much. Yeah, yeah, it's always good. I mean, they've they've obviously needed a quarterback. I mean, the one year that they made the NFC Championship. I mean, Bortles did okay, but really, that's why they lost to the Patriots, let's be honest. Like, they probably could have won the Super Bowl with a better quarterback that year. Yeah, they always had uh, a lot of real hard time keeping their offensive energy in the second half. Had they been able to do that, I think uh, that Patriots game would have gone a little different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, but listening to to different experts talk you know analysts and things like that and reading some articles uh the, the jaguars apparently did very well in this nfl draft and i definitely liked a lot of their picks as well especially some of their late rounders but sticking to the first round they also had a second one um in a in a running back we know how important those guys are in fantasy but they picked up travis etn uh, who, you know, I heard from one analyst, this guy could possibly have some Elvin Kamara type speed and elusiveness. That would be pretty awesome to have. But, you know, you have to temper expectations for that kind of stuff because you never know who's going to be good. I mean, Kamara wasn't a first round pick and, and he kind of came out of nowhere at first. But, uh, you know, I personally I saw this pick as uh, they're trying to make Lawrence's life easier. They didn't get their offensive line guy. They picked this guy up. You know, you know, like you, you got that passing back, you check it down, you make some plays. Um, and, and you make his life easier so that he doesn't have to throw nine yards if it's third and now, and he could check down and maybe that guy can, can get the first down. But, you know, when you look at guys like that, uh, when you're going into your fantasy draft and, um, you know, getting ready to, to see if you want running back depth and things like that, you know, would you see a guy like this as I want to get him on my team or you wait for waivers, uh, you know, later, uh, knowing that people might not draft him? This is one of the guys that might not be on the top running back rankings in the beginning. So, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I think Kamara was so successful in the Saints is that they have been working with running backs and had a system uh, to work with a lot of different kinds of running backs. They've had huge amounts of success through Brees. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of it really comes down to some of the big news about Urban Meyer, you know, coaching that. Um, so I think a lot of it is going to come down to their play calling and how well do they use those. There's definitely a lot of potential, um, but, you know, if they're using a hammer uh, with a screw, well, you may not have that, that much success. Everybody knows in the NFL draft, you know, running backs don't normally go in the first round. It's not like fantasy where the top five picks are all running backs, you know, like it, people wait for later rounds, you know, there's all kinds of question marks. Are they going to work? And then it's all about system as well. Like your offensive line and things like that. But we had a second running back picked by the Steelers, a Najee Harris, a Alabama guy. 
Um, and obviously the Steelers don't want to throw the ball 60 times. I mean, remember last year, aging Ben Roethlisberger, he was like murdered on half those plays, <laughs> you know, and they do have a lot of backs on their team with James Connor and, and those guys. So it's interesting to see where he fits, but everybody considers this guy a three down back, you know, breaking tackles played in some big games at Alabama, you know, winning national championships and things like that. So, you know, when you see a guy like this, I, his early rankings are, rb 15 to 20 so this is a guy that probably will be drafted in the in the fantasy drafts i know our league is really weird so who knows where these guys are drafted but you know how do you go into a draft with this uh do do you look do you want to snatch this guy right away you know guys like this that could be a workhorse and you could get them in like the middle rounds or you know do you wait and and see if he falls to the 10th or 11th round I mean, I'm sure that anyone in the draft will tell you uh, there's a lot of gambling. There's been a lot of situations, but especially I know with Alex, she's an expert at picking up the players that everyone else wanted right before they, they want to uh, get them. Um, I mean, when it comes to the Steelers, like, again, they have a great program. They've had great success. So you got to figure that their scouting and their research is definitely doing some diligence. So, um, you know, definitely I would think that the Steelers running back, even as a rookie, um, you know, the running backs have a pretty short longevity, all things considered. Um, so he, you know, theoretically should be really good coming, coming right out of college. Um, but the one thing it does kind of change is what, uh, what pick you are in your fantasy league. Um, as always, you want to pick the best player, you know, a value for that pick. And if it's a really good running back, absolutely. But if that's not really in the cards, if you're stuck, you know, picking a running back that's maybe older or a team that's really struggling, well, you know, maybe it's better to, to go for that number two wide receiver um, on like championship ready team. Yeah, absolutely. I could totally see that. I, one thing to say, Mike Tomlin obviously loves to run the ball, which was weird about last year with how they had to throw it all the time. They really didn't trust Connor because he fumbled it too much. This is a guy that uh, doesn't fumble it a lot. So, you think he's got some things going for him, but uh, you know, obviously it is, it does depend on the pick, you know, where you are and our draft is weird. I think you can maybe comment on this further. Like we'll, we'll have kickers going in the eighth, ninth rounds, defenses going early. And, and it's kind of funny. Cause I've played in a lot of competitive leagues, uh, but I've played in a lot of competitive leagues where everybody knows about they're following football, like all the time they're, they're, you know, making sure they're up to date on the draft and everything like that. I almost find it more challenging in our league because people just kind of, you know, they kind of do what they want to do. They don't follow any kind of plan. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but there have been times I'm like, oh, my God, there's like the, the third round is over and there's like no quarterbacks left, which is like almost a no, no in a fantasy draft. Usually, I mean, how, how do you deal with that kind of stuff? Because I, I, I have trouble sometimes you can mock draft all you want i don't think you can prepare for our draft oh yeah yeah I, I definitely have gone in there saying okay i'm gonna shoot for this quarterback and this quarterback and they're gonna go in this round and you know that that generally works pretty well i mean obviously being based around the midwest and wisconsin a lot of members are series packer fans so you can expect a lot of those players to disappear early maybe earlier than they they would need to um i mean preparing for it you know, obviously doing those mock drafts are helpful. I think doing research is really good, but that's one of the things that's really enjoyable about fantasy football. You can do a lot of research you can do all the things that you, you know, you can do, but you're always still surprised. Yeah. And you know about injuries. You've had a couple of crazy times. 
So, you know, I do want to, you talked about uh, possibly getting that wide receiver. So I do want to talk about some of these rookie wide receivers because those guys could definitely also help, especially later in the year. Uh, You know, one thing that I saw, and I don't know if you noticed this, but in the first round of the draft, a lot of guys were taken where they have experience with the quarterback on the team. You you know, Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, uh, Tua Tagovailoa and Jalen Waddle, and then Jalen Hurts and Devonta Smith. So, I mean, when you see a rookie wideout, if they already have a rapport with the quarterback, is that something that you're thinking about? Because personally, I, I do think about that because I think that's one of the toughest things. You got to learn the playbook and you got to get a rapport. If you already kind of have a rapport, that's a huge check mark off the list, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, rapport with a quarterback, because like obviously a wide receiver isn't really that much without a good quarterback. If you have an absolute trash quarterback, that wide receiver is not going to be doing as well, no matter how good they are, no matter how open they are. That quarterback in that position, or the arm, or the line isn't there to protect them long enough for that receiver to get to point A to point B. It's not going to do you much good. And conversely, a great quarterback can make a good wide receiver. Um, you know, it's wide receivers are they're studs when they're hot, but uh, you know they need a lot of the team to come around to put them in that position. Um, they're they're really the ones that finish up that that play and really get a lot of that glory. But there's a lot of steps get there um it's just as important with uh good chemistry with a good tight end look at the combos with breeze and graham and Gronk. Right. um you know when you have that good chemistry you will be good for a very long time um not that they really have a lot of control over keeping themselves together but it was a little unorthodox to watch Gronk come out of retirement and yeah i'll win another super bowl with sure like <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was insane i don't think anyone technically saw that one coming i mean i know it's brady and, and he had weapons finally but man that was that was pretty a pretty ridiculous super bowl but i don't not many people probably had uh you know mahomes getting chased all around like he did and not doing anything <laughs> you know it's just it was pretty dominant defensively from them you know yeah well and there's a massive uh, gulf of experience difference i mean brady obviously many super bowls under his belt Definitely not the first time he's been there. Nowhere near as much experience. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I do have to say, you kind of talked about one of the reasons why you like fantasy football, but uh, you, from what I recall, you weren't necessarily a huge football fan. You didn't follow it as much before we started uh, getting into fantasy. Uh, I mean, what drew you to fantasy football? I know we had a lot of discussions and you maybe saw some things and, you know, saw maybe, you know, me talking about it, getting all excited about things. But, uh, you know, what? What, what drew you to fantasy? What keeps you coming back? And, you know, why, why is that uh, sort of important to you following football? Well, uh, I mean, yeah, originally I didn't really follow much of any sports um, professionally. Um, I started watching Badger football um, partially because, you know, I live in Madison and here it's a big deal, just like, you know, down in Alabama. Um, it's, you know, very community oriented. Uh, everyone gets really excited about it. It's, it's a lot of fun. And that's what really kind of got me into watching uh, professional or just any football, um, you know, really. And um, uh, several of you, know, obviously you and our co-founder, Nick, uh, very interested in professional. Um, so over enough time, I started to get into it. Um, and uh, you know, doing research um, on that stuff, that definitely was something I enjoyed doing. Um, for instance, as a World of Warcraft player, there's a whole bunch of research that goes into competitive stuff. And really... Um, anything that's quote-unquote professional league, there's a whole lot of nuance 
football in a lot of ways is really just that extension um, for football in and of itself. Um, obviously, there's, there's different kinds of gambling with fantasy, but um, it's more of a long term where your research and your dedication will definitely pay off. Doing it with your friends and, uh, and doing it when there's that competitive nature, um, but all in good fun, you know, that's definitely one of the appeals. Um, one of the things that I've remarked about uh, professional football is that as a lot of predictions um, going into the year and what actually happens and what the state of the league is at the end of the year are almost always completely different. There's, it's not like the NBA where, you know, like, oh, yeah, it's going to be, you know, the Lakers and the Heat and, oh, surprise, surprise, it's the Lakers and the Heat. Um, yeah. Football, a lot more, it's a lot more intangible. It's a lot more difficult to predict. Um, and so that's one of the things that makes it more fun. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, when we were talking about the league, our first attempt kind of fell through late because we couldn't really get, uh, you know, people joining it. You know, it, it's kind of a whole process to run a league too. Anybody could just join a league, but you know, we had to get players to play and then players to return, um, which I think we've done really good. But, uh, you know, it's it's kind of funny. I actually won two titles when uh, the year when we didn't have the league, just random leagues. I haven't won anything since, <laughs> you know, but I do remember uh, the one time we were both kind of excited and we were upset that we didn't get the league going so we both joined leagues late and we saw that crazy odell beckham jr catch and we were both like oh is he is he available and we both looked you know like i I feel like those are the moments when you're just like oh yeah this is really fun because like nobody saw i mean we knew beckham was kind of a beast but that catch was just we were like this guy's got to be on my team and obviously he's been when he's healthy has been one of the top fantasy wideouts you know, but, uh, you know, when you look at moments like that, I'm guessing like me, that's kind of what gets you excited. Those kind of crazy moments that uh, you never see coming, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it was a spectacular play and it was a real display of athleticism and skill. And, um, I mean, it's those kind of moments that really make, uh, make the sport exciting. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, we talked about this a little bit, but going through our draft, I think it kind of says the, the weirdness of our league and how difficult it is to win in our league. Um, you know, especially since only four out of the city, you know, you had you and Katie as the two time champs, but you know, and then other random people coming in doing well, but then they didn't do well the next year or didn't do well other years. So it's kind of random. And, and to be honest, draft pick doesn't really matter because we've had all kinds of people picking, uh, you know, certain positions. I'm actually, I don't think anybody that picked first has ever won a championship. I have to double check that, but that's kind of funny uh, that that's happened. But, uh, you know, Mr. Two-Time Champ, I think the listeners would would get to know a lot more how difficult is our league, you know. I I think it's one of the toughest I've ever been in just because of the variables. Yeah, I I think uh, probably the most important thing is in the first, maybe the first to the fifth weeks, uh, maybe even a little further than that, really watching everybody, watching these rookies, um, seeing how these like backups and stuff, um, if they really got potential, uh, picking them up, um, staying them off the wire is, is really critical. I mean, yeah, every once in a while, your top running backs are going to be studs for the whole year with no injuries, but I mean, that does not happen. Look at, I, I went in on the Niners last year and, yeah. uh, that did not pay off as well. And I held on to him the whole year. It's going to be healthy. It's going to be healthy. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, obviously you won the title twice. And you did, I feel like your uh, second title, you kind of dominated because Todd Gurley was an absolute maniac that season. 
Um, and, and you really like he led you in like in those last games to win the title, he was getting you 40 points a game. <laughs> like he was, he was our green bowl MVP that year. Cause he was insane. Um, but you know, your first championship was super close. Uh, all, our records were all close. You had a lot of injuries you had to deal with. Um, and then you needed like Ellen Robinson to have a ridiculous, like 75, 90 yard touchdown catch or whatever that was in the championship to win. What was that feeling like when you won? I remember you were like super excited, almost surprised a little bit, uh, you know, that you were even in that position. But I mean, that it, I know you were having fun when you won that title. Well, yeah, I uh, I was at work. I was at Brewer that day. Um, Sundays were always pretty slow, so I was watching the games during that. And uh, I think yeah, that game happened right as I closed. I think I got the news that that Robinson had that catch because um, I was getting on the bus at the time. And I sat down on my phone, and it's like, Alan Robinson, like, 58-yard touchdown. And I was just like, yes! And then I looked up, and I was like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one knows what's going on. You're just cheering. <laughs> I had a good day. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have to say, you know, what was better, winning uh, winning those titles or uh, getting your first brewmaster bid? Oof. That's a tough one. Um, I would say that considering the brewmaster is probably a bit more of a late game chaos, probably good, but um, the elation um, was a little different. Getting to be the brewer was a lot of uh, hard work, so it wasn't like that you know, awesome moment. It was definitely a hill to climb, whereas uh, winning the championship was much more of like a shock and uh, you know, much more of like uh, an elation quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I hope that I could one day feel that elation of holding that green bowl and, and drinking a beer from it, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, now that we're on talking about brewing, I think, uh, we, we should talk about some brewing here. Uh, obviously one of your many specialties, uh, you know, just a little background, uh, thrown at, uh, you know, from Pooch, uh, he received uh, associates in brewing technology from the Siebel Institute of Technology. Uh, he then worked at Brewing Grow in Madison, uh, you know, kind of learning the ins and outs of the, of the Sabco Pilot 15 gallon system. So it was kind of his first foray into like a bigger gallon system because we were home brewing before that. He, b- he began to, you know, develop his own recipes and, uh, you know, from the ingredients at his disposal. And, and, you know, one thing I think is awesome is he he definitely delved into all the different styles. He made sure he kind of learned all those things. You know, I got to taste a lot of these beers as he was making them. Very good yeah, at Brewing Grow. He also met uh, Eric Peterson, who's uh, you know the owner of uh, uh, Union Corners, and and you know he loved his beer, and they kind of got together and started coming up with a partnership. And uh, you know, after some, you know, the development, the bureaucratic red tape, and you know, construction things you got to deal with, they finally got it going. Um, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was summer of 2019, correct? Yeah, June. Yeah, it was June 2019, and, and you know he became the the brewmaster there, and uh, you know he's been doing that ever since. But you know, for an even deeper dive into Pooch's brewing career, I, I do think we need to talk about some of the home brewing beginnings because they they are quite comical when you think about it. You know, to to be a professional now, and then some of the random stuff that we did when we didn't really know a lot, we were just kind of going into it, learning the system. But uh, you helped uh, me and our mutual friend Max. Uh, brew a beer at a cabin like a random cabin in the woods that uh, you didn't even get served cell phone service we were kind of you know it was like the setting for a horror movie but uh 
you know, we, we, we dubbed our beer the end of the world beer, too, because of our love for cosmic horror. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Pooch actually, he asked. He was interested in brewing. And, uh, you know, we did some crazy things. I mean, do you remember that? We were cooling the beer outside. I don't even think we knew about star sand yet, so we weren't really sanitizing. You know, somehow the beer came out and was good still. I mean, that's one thing we can say. We've never really messed up a beer, even though we weren't doing some of the proper things you're supposed to do. But, uh, you, you know, have you ever thought about some of those ridiculous times and thought, like, wow, I've come a long way from where I began? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I mean, it's, it, you know, like a lot of customers uh, at Brew & Grow used to ask me, oh, how do you know all this stuff? And, uh, you know, as you talked about, it's a lot of trial and error. You know, it, it, oh, yeah. There, for years, we did a lot of that home brewing stuff, and um, we managed to make it through just fine. But I mean, I'll never forget you almost slipping down the stairs, the full carboy of wort. Like, oh, yeah. um, there's all kinds of moments where it was like, "Well, I'm not doing that again." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We thought we were making styles, and then we learned, nope, that's not how you make that style. <laughs> it was still a very good beer, but it was just like, nope, we can't really call it that. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the things that really, uh, why working at Broom Grow was, was really advantageous because uh, the T-Bowl education was excellent, um, but they mostly focused on, you know, the hardware and tools and stuff that you'd be using, um, discussing for them about, like, how to build recipes is a little more challenging, for one, the intellectual property, um, but two, like, they didn't really seem to want to tell anybody, this is how you brew good beer, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. There are a lot of different things that don't really fit style like uh got the three floyds american wheat um that i think when they, they came out with that one it, it was very difficult for them to fit that in this particular style and win that awards for that beer but it was still an excellent seller so yeah. i think that you know that you know hey throw stuff against the wall and you never know it might be really good yeah absolutely and you know, when we were homebrewing, knowing that you were definitely interested and wanted to do this, you know, you got to take the reins with recipes because you wanted to develop some things and learn some things. So I was fine with kind of going along that ride as well. Um, but, uh, you know, when you when you think about, uh, you know, homebrewing and, uh, you know, now doing sort of professional brewing, you know, what, what do you think are some, you know, obviously there's a lot of differences, but what do you think are some of the main differences in, in creating recipes? Cause you're now creating recipes that everybody's going to love and enjoy. And they're going to, you're creating recipes that you're trying to make profits off of. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, homebrewers have uh, some advantages. Um, for instance, when you are making beer in large quantities, because five gallons, you know, that's just a slim sip. You know, when we talk about a barrel as a unit of measurement here in the United States, that's 31 gallons. So that's a significant amount more than what most home brewers are making. And yeah. one barrel obviously would not really fly for any commercial bar. You need a lot more beer than that. So when you're scaling up to that level, not everything is a straight line. You know, with alcohol and sugar content, things like that, that's a little easier to get. But like, Popularization changes dramatically as you get up there, as well as working with um, different pieces of hardware might present different problems. So uh, we use electric elements for our system, um, and putting in, you know, syrups or certain materials like uh, fruit pulp or something might cause issues with that equipment that you previously didn't. Um, you know, so as far as the volume of what you have to use, you know, it's very easy to 
well, I'm going to use real blood oranges. I'm going to peel them all myself. Or same thing with ginger. You know, the first time I used ginger, I was using real ginger. But when you have to shred pounds of ginger by hand, like, eventually you're just like, you know what? I think I'm going to look into the second track. Um, <laughs> you know, like homebrewers have some advantages with um, the approaches that they get to use, um, as well as some more exotic tastes. Um, you know, when you only make five gallons of beer, it's not hard to make that disappear. But when you make, I don't know, 65 or more gallons at a time, uh, some of your more exotic flavors, they don't, they're a lot harder to sell. Uh, there are a lot of beers out there that people are more than interested in trying. They hey, that's pretty good. But when you look at the beers that actually move, the stuff that, you know, people get full 20-ounce mugs of and come back to and come back to, a lot of those are much more simple and approachable beers. So uh, usually when I look at uh, brew pub menus, you know, you have your mainstays or you know, flagships as usually as we call them. And then your more exotic stuff to seasonal, you don't want as many of those because it's a lot harder to sell, but you still want to turn them over and get rid of them so that you can keep new products on the Yeah, that's interesting that you talked about, uh, you know, using, uh, you know, different, fruit things and ginger and, and, and how that can mess up your system uh, when you're brewing a bigger batch. You know, I'm going to have a YouTube show coming up uh, called Brewing the Facts. Uh, you know, good pun there, I know. But, uh, you know, I'm going to have that coming out in a few months. Um, yeah, as my, and my next beer I'm going to make is a raspberry jalapeno wheat ale. So, of course, in my secondary, I'm going to use halved jalapenos and I'm going to, you know, use a raspberry uh, puree. And those are the types of things I'm guessing that it's difficult to do in a big system. You got to worry about, you know, are you going to ruin the system? And then you got to try to sell that beer. And it's one of those things where it's a niche. I might really love those flavors. I might like a lot of spicy beers. And I think that's part of the homebrew thing. You know, I'm, I'm making the beer for myself. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not trying to sell the beer. So it's a whole, it's a whole nother thing. And then at the same time, I'm kind of getting experimental with it, you know, kind of using a mixture of, uh, you know, British grains and German grains and, and you know, things like that. Uh, you know, I'm using like a midnight wheat grain in there because I wanted to make it uh, darker in color because it's actually, uh, you know, I, I'm, I know that, you know, I've been doing uh, beers that kind of equal the character of Doctor Who classic doctors. And this one's the sixth doctor, you know, because it's like, he's kind of sweet and spicy and, and he's kind of got a dark side to him. So I kind of wanted to fit that in there you know, make it nice. I also love malt forward beers. And I feel like in a malt forward beer, uh, you, you use a lot of British grains because they, they really love that. Like it, a lot of those grains have that kind of maltiness to them. Um, and, and, you know, some German grains and pretty much all European grains, to be honest. Um, but, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be more to this show too, because I'll be talking about random facts uh, related to beer, but, uh, you know, sports music type stuff and maybe some history of, of brewing, you know, in the medieval times and things like that. So it should be fun for everybody to see, subscribe to my channel and check that out. Uh, but you know, when I'm thinking about home brewing, like you said, how difficult it is and, and the differences when you're trying to make a profit, you know, do you ever still do a little home brewing to, to kind of mess with recipes or is that really hard to do when, when you have a job now you have to make beers and you don't, you definitely don't want to experiment a huge batch and then it's wasted because no one bought it. So, I mean, how do you go into, creating new recipes you know do you do a homebrew batch just to check it out yeah i mean a lot of breweries will typically use uh they 
call our pilot system. Uh, you mentioned the Stabco pilot system that I worked on at Brewergo. Um, a lot of times brewers will use that to kind of pilot stuff, um, just to check it out, um, kind of compare it, you know. And um, part of the way I set up my facility over there is uh, we have a split system. Um, so if I want to, I can do a half batch and I'm only working with a smaller amount so that if it's not as popular as I thought it would be, well, you know, it's only a few kegs. It's easy to stash maybe one of those kegs when you go to brewing festivals. You can bring those things with you and, you know, showcase this up like, hey, this is something from the vault that we don't have and, and people are more willing to try it, which is, you know, that's the kind of exact customer you want to put in front of that beer. You know, a lot of times when customers, the regulars, they're coming in, they're not as interested in trying things because they know what they like, you know. And, um, you know, when you have so many different beers on tap, people can try them. Um, but, you know, people do have their tastes. Uh, you know, as a, as a bartender, I always, you know, say, well, what do you like? What, what, what's, what's good? And I'm like, well, oh, good. Tell me a little bit of what you like because you know, I've got some great hoppy beers. But if you don't like hoppy beers, then you're probably not going to be interested in them. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when when you think about beers, uh, I'm guessing it could be different with this, but, you know, what are some of your favorite styles to drink, but then what are your some of your favorite styles to brew? Because I'm guessing if you're getting kind of crazy with a beer, that might be one of your, you know, favorites to do because you're kind of doing more. Uh, but obviously you have your favorites to drink too. So, so, you know, tell the audience about that. Well, I mean, when you're doing, um, when you're making weird stuff, uh, or when you're a home brewer, you can try a lot of different things. Uh, you can run, you know, tests about, for instance, coffee, the best way to put in coffee. Should we do a cold brew? Should we put it in the boil? Should we seek it, you know, or steep it in a bag or something like that? Um, you, you know, you're really encouraged to try a lot of that. But when it's your job, and you're doing it over and over again, you're trying to be efficient with your time. Um, a lot of your, you know, you really try to steer towards like, okay, this is how we do it. These are techniques that we know work, and this is what will we'll keep our, our process more efficient. Um, you know, hops for me probably was one of the things um, that have a large amount of technique, um, where to put the hops in, how much, you know, do you throw them in or do you keep them in a sack or something like that. There's a lot of uh, discussion nowadays, even amongst professional brewing, um, you know, about the best ways to use hops. So initially, um, I stuck to some of those homebrew rules because they had yielded success, um, but you know some of those techniques didn't translate as well in the commercial world. Um, and now after brewing, uh, however many hoppy batches I've done by now, now I'm like, okay, this technique works and it doesn't require me to babysit this for maybe two hours. You know, whereas in the home brewing world, when you're only dealing with five gallons, um, you can shorten that up because it's not bad, like cooling your beer, for instance, it takes a lot longer when you are cooling, you know, a huge amount of beer as opposed to a small amount. Um, you know, as far as what I drink, uh, for me, typically that's like sessionable ales. Um, I don't really enjoy like massive alcohol beers. I like a big glass of beer. Um, so I, I do flop around from a couple of different uh, sessionable styles. Uh, but as far as what I drink uh, in my place, usually it's um, my dark wheat beer. Uh, Francis Connor uh, Dunkelweiss was one of the, the beers that really got me into beer. Um, so I've always been a sucker for a nice dark wheat beer. Uh, but I you know, do enjoy a lot of the sessionable pale ales that are out. I mean, personally, I think hazy IPAs, for the most part, a lot of them really fit into the category of pale ale. And um, I think that's one of the reasons that we really got that 
popular um, because the IPA craze has faded out and the intensity of its flavor um, wasn't as broad of appeal as necessarily more sessionable uh, pale ale bar. Um, so I usually alternate between um, you know, one of those two. I do like a good malty beer. So uh, I do have sours on, on occasion, um, but for me, it's probably more once in a while kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. It's kind of funny when you talked about uh, not liking alcoholic beers. Our friend Max loves like just adding it like some of the first beers we made we put in like 12 pounds of extract you know like liquid extract just to make the thing like 10 percent you know those were like you know it what's funny is they didn't necessarily have that kind of fusel alcohol taste i don't know how the hell we did that it, it, I, I mean it, we probably messed up some of the sugar type things but you know I, I i'm actually like that now i don't necessarily like that it's usually a turnoff for me and if i'm grading a beer if it has that kind like if a beer is 7%, but I don't, you know, feel like it doesn't taste like it's 7%, that's a little different. But a lot of these beers that are like six and a half to 9% um, sometimes have that off flavor that it, it, it's, I don't know, it takes away from the grain and the yeast flavors, I feel, you know, it doesn't necessarily work well uh, together. But some people like it, I guess, but I, I'm definitely not one of those anymore. I, I prefer this kind of session ales as well. Now, I feel like there's more flavor, you know. Yeah, well, and you're, when you're, you know, brewing as a business, uh, the time that that beer spends just sitting around not doing anything, not making any money, is also a time to consider. So, you know, higher alcohol beers typically do require a little bit more aging uh, before they're they're peak ready. Um, homebrew, obviously, you can you know wait as long as you like, but uh, especially if you're a big commercial brewery that does canning and packaging like that, you want to flip that stuff as quick as you can. And if you're working with a distributor. It's, it's pretty normal that it'll be at least a month um, between when that beer leaves that facility and when it actually hits the shelf. So you can kind of cheat a little bit and assume, well, you know, it'll age out in the can just fine. And sometimes it works well and uh, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. You know, I do, uh, I do want to get a little bit back to, to your growth as a brewer as well. Obviously, you took those Siebel classes and then moved to Brew and Grow. Um, you know, how was that transition? And to... Uh, tell everyone how challenging was it uh, you know at some point you obviously wanted to run your own brewing show you wanted to get that opportunity but you had to wait for the right opportunity you had to wait for something to open up you know how, how challenging was that for you knowing that you really wanted to do this and it, and it was a big you know process that you needed to be patient for yeah well and I mean I think these days it's pretty challenging for any school to try and advise um, some programs especially um with the tech programs like you know, welding or electricians or whatever, you know, you have a journey program and it's set up to help get you into that industry. There are many, many industries in America. When I went to school, um, brewing was one of these industries where it was difficult to say how you got into be a brewer. Um, you know, after I got my civil education, I figured that applying to breweries uh, would be a lot easier because obviously breweries get tons of requests from avid home brewers trying to get in there every day. So I figured, well, I'll get some education that'll help me stand out. The problem that I found is that that puts you on a level where, yeah, you're kind of expected to get paid a little more because you invested in your education. But at the same time, a lot of positions that are available at the brewery may not pay that well, or they may say, hey, you know, we can get somebody that can do this job for a lot less money. And as a business, that's, you know, even though like they'd like to invest in you, uh, especially like it's hard to understand at that point when, you know, as a business, you, you know, 
this job to uh, you know, to clean cats. You don't necessarily need uh, a degree to be able to do that. And they're also not interested in employees who is pushing them constantly to get out of that job because they have the potential to do that job. Um, so, I mean, it's it's easy to say, I just take whatever job you can get. But, you know, that's probably one piece of advice I had to learn, you know, as a younger guy, um, is that when you go to inter interview for places, you know, you should interview them as well um, to, to figure out whether it's the right fit, um, to figure out whether, I mean, obviously, I think brewing styles are a little more of an esoteric idea. Um, like, you know, a professional brewing, you can brew whatever, you should be able to brew whatever you, you, know, you need to. Um, but um, understanding like what their uh, business model, what their uh, branding is, you know, um, especially if you're gonna be a big part of that, uh, that section, as, as opposed to like larger breweries where you're just a guy in the trenches, uh, so to speak. Uh, yeah, it, it, it took a while to find position um, and especially when you're going for a more creative aspect um, those jobs are hardest hard to come by or aren't easy to come by um, you know it, it's easy to get in there to clean kegs and to mop the floors because I mean honestly that's one of the reasons I hired my assistant um, was because he was the best at cleaning and then I could trust him if I asked him to clean something I knew he would do, do a good job but that doesn't necessarily take a whole lot of expertise or training. It just takes diligence and hard work. Um, I mean, I think one of the advantages of Siebel, um, and one of the reasons I really enjoyed that program, uh, is because it was a European trade school. Um, it didn't really have a lot of the bells and whistles and some of the you know spiel that you know, the American uh, Title IV schools tend to put behind their experiences. They're trying to sell you on an experience best time in your life or anything and, and a lot of the training schools were a lot more straightforward to the point we want to get you in and out we want to get you trained um, so they're not there for the same things that, that you know the, the regular schools would be for um, so the, the kind of just the facts um, definitely appealed because um, I, I didn't have to learn a bunch of stuff that really did, wasn't at all related to brewing yeah I could see that for sure you know I'm mean, the you know, one thing we know about school just for all specialties, they don't necessarily prepare you for, you know, getting a job in your profession and the things that you probably need to continue to learn and continue to do and get skills from. And then it's that catch 22 where, you know, you need experience to get some of these bigger jobs, but in order to get that experience, you already have to have experience. You know? like, I'm familiar with that paradox really well. <laughs> That's one of the nice things about that's changed since when I went to school and now. Um, when I was going to Seville, um, there were only a few programs um, in the United States that were like that. Um, most other programs, if you wanted to go to school for brewing in America, you had to get a food science degree with a specialty in fermentation. And it was a much more traditional four year or more plan. Um, whereas Seville uh, offers an associate program for just a year. Um, I mean, there's a few breaks in there, but generally the program takes about a year. And um, it uh, nowadays, there's a lot more of them out there. I think especially that the brewing industry has blossomed. And honestly, there's just a lot of money in there. A lot of these schools are looking like, oh, well, maybe we should take this seriously. But, you know, even UW-Madison, um, you know, was very reluctant to actually have a, a brewing specialty program because they were already concerned with their image as being the drunkest college in America or whatever. 
attitudes have changed. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm sure you agree that the American education system needs uh, a few overhauls. We've had this horrible pandemic and, uh, you know, it's been kind of challenging, especially for businesses. So I do have to, I do want to, to go into that for you. You know, how tough has it been for you? You had the shutdowns and then, you know, obviously everyone's trying to get vaccinated now uh, to hopefully open some things up. And they do seem like they are opening up and, you know, perhaps we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But, uh, you know, especially as a, as a brewmaster, you know, you're worried about wasting beers. And I'm guessing it was very difficult during this time. How much do you brew? How much do you put on tap? You know, what to expect? You know, how tough was that for you? I mean, I would say it's a mixed bag. Um, some things weren't as bad. Uh, some things could have gone better. Um, and some of that's on us. Um, some things, you know, seemed really terrible, but actually really weren't that bad. Um, I mean, some of it, like when it comes to your um, uh, portfolio and your timing and things like that, yeah, generally you do want to serve the freshest beer possible. Uh, but fortunately, the shutdown happened in March. And most brewers will tell you that, you know, towards the end of the year and the beginning of the year is when you're really prepping for the summer. Summer months typically being when most of your product is consumed. So I had prepared a bunch of our beer. And March was kind of when you're seeing the hump. You know, you're like, all right, I'm ready for the spring. Got stuff ready to go. I should be ready. Um, so when we shut down, it was like, well, all these seasonals that I had planned that I was going to brew, you know, in like maybe a month or two, I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to wait and see. Um, you know, generally your keg stock is, is, you know, how wherever you whether it's serving tanks or kegs or bottles or cans that you know your beer ends up in, that is the end of the line. So if that's all full, you don't have anywhere to go with your beer. So as long as you keep that steady, then you can kind of gauge your production. You know, you're trying to always stay one step ahead of it. Um, so watching that end of the end of the production will help you know how to react and when you should be doing this, that, and the other thing. Um, I mean, I think for us, uh, one of the, the downsides um, was that like a lot of other craft breweries, they are building themselves into a restaurant experience. Um, and unfortunately, that is the one thing that really got hit hardest. You know, had we been a pizza joint in a brewery, had we had a drive-through, you know, or something like that, that probably would have been night and day different. I mean, Culver's, there was an interview uh, I was watching with a guy from Culver's and a local um food fight, their local restaurant group. Um, there's an interview between them and another restaurant tour. And uh, Culver's had a 4% increase in sales in 2020, um, just because their model was better situated for a pandemic environment. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of breweries, including our struggles, is that we had invested so heavily into the dine-in restaurant experience. And uh, we had an advantage because our, our dining space is largely rectangular. So when it comes to the six-foot rule and putting tables, you know, where they need to be, it was relatively, you know, straightforward because of, you know, it's a pretty simple space to design around. Not every brewery is like that. Some breweries' dining spaces are Z's or, you know, other weird shapes or oblongs. Um, that, that definitely made the six-foot rule uh, a lot more difficult depending on how your place was set up. Um, we had a patio. And frankly, because a lot of the rules um, that applied during the pandemic didn't at all apply to an outdoor setting. 
So if you had a patio, obviously during the summer months, that really was, you know, a godsend for the, for the business. And it was pretty, pretty common, even I think without the pandemic, you'd have a full patio. So every table out there would be full. And then maybe you have one or two tables sitting inside, even though you might have the same seating capacity on both sides. So, uh, you know, I think in, in my experience, at least in Wisconsin, um, when it's nice outside, people want to sit outside. That's probably the number one that's important to them. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely see that. Uh, uh, I was actually going to ask about that, you know, having, having that patio had to be really huge uh, during that time to, to oh, yeah. be able to, especially, I mean, one of the things, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, I'm guessing it got harder when it got cold, but you know, you did have that summer, you know, and I feel like a lot of places kind of were able to set up something and at least get something out of it. Um, so that that's definitely, I mean, that's, it's good that you guys were able to, to kind of keep something going. Cause I know there's a lot of places that were on the brink of, uh, you know, shutting down, you know, especially newer places that open, you know, around here in Minnesota, there were a couple places that literally just opened and, and it is, it ruined them. You know, the pandemic, they didn't have enough, like you said, they had a weird space. They couldn't get enough capacity inside because of that, you know, and then they didn't necessarily have the greatest setup outside because they didn't think they were going to need it in the beginning. Well, and I mean, for us, like the way that our building was separated and how much seating that we had in there, it wasn't too difficult for us to hit the, uh, the occupancy maximum with just tables. So like a lot of places, not having a bar that you could sit at, or if that was the only seating you had, that, you know, that was a lot harder to, you know, follow the six foot rule um, with, with a bar top, with any bar top. Um, but because we had so many tables, you know, um, we just kind of said, well, you know what, we can just ax the seating to not use it for the, the length of it and still have plenty of seats available for people. Um, but, you know, it also depends on where your brewery is. I think, uh, you know, we're in Madison. It's probably one of the more liberal places in Wisconsin or less leaning or however you want to say it. Um, so people took it very seriously and uh, it definitely changed customer um, habits. Uh, by and large, and uh, I think that probably the breweries that did the best and fared the best are the ones that were agile enough, you know, to look at things a different way and say, you know what, we weren't going to do any canning, but now we kind of got to, or, you know, you know, we're going to buy a bunch of plain glass growlers and sell them for cheap and really encourage people to take you and go. Um, and, and I think a lot of breweries, especially a lot of customer bases, um, are more than happy to, to bend and change their habits a little, um, but that's not the same in all places. Um, there are, I definitely encounter quite a few customers, not only at my place, but in other places that were just upset that things weren't quote normal and they couldn't get their normal service. And for some customers that really upset them to the point that they didn't want to continue doing business, which is a shame, but yeah, yeah. And it is nice that we're finally maybe seeing the light at the end of the table here. I myself, you know, by the time everyone listens to this podcast, I'll be fully vaccinated. Oh, my God. I've, been, I've literally been waiting for that for so long. I've been so cooped up. I can't wait to go out to places. I had all these plans. I was going to go to sporting venues. And there's so many breweries around me that I wanted to check out. Um, I actually did a couple on my random reactions, like taste stuff of things I didn't I didn't even know exist. Like I kind of knew, but I didn't taste their beers yet. There's a place in New Ulm, Minnesota here, like second oldest family brewer, 
brewery ever. It's like from the 1800s and, and they do a lot of like German type style beer. So I was kind of excited to check that place out. And it's just being vaccinated. I'm like, please, like, I want to go places again. I want to go to live sports again. You know, I want to I want to hang out with friends and, and hug people and, and, you know, play board games and, and be outside all that good stuff, you know, without, you know, just hanging out, you know, being sociable. I feel like I'm stuck inside this whole time. But, uh, you know, for, for you guys, you're obviously going to be, you know, maybe opening up a little bit more as it comes. So, I mean, is there is there anything uh, this summer that uh, customers uh, that go to Union Corners can look forward to? Any new beers maybe you're coming up with, seasonals, things like that, and, and any events or anything like that that people have to look forward to? Yeah, I mean, um, when it comes to events, it's very much a kind of a wait-and-see attitude right now. Yeah, um, I bet. One of the big festivals around here, La Fête Marquette, has officially been canceled this year. But then the Waterfront and Orton Park festivals, respectively, uh, they joined forces. And now it's just one festival, and they plan on having theirs. Um, so some organizations are kind of pushing forward. Others are being a little more conservative. Um, I know we had talked about doing an anniversary thing uh, for ourselves in June, uh, but we're not entirely sure of what we want to do or what is even possible to do at that point. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are getting vaccinated. I had my first shot. I think I got my second one in like a couple of weeks here. Um, so I think that, that makes a really big impact on what people feel comfortable with. Um, I, you know, I think bars, you know, people can always get food and get it to go. But when it comes to like live venues, for instance, I think that's going to be a really big weather day. Um, if people feel comfortable going to, you know, the, the concert where it's packed, uh, you know, nut to butt, elbow to elbow, um, you know, that's definitely going to be a, a big test as to whether what we're doing is okay and, and whether people are, are healthy enough to do that. Um, as far as beers go, yeah, I, I definitely had to be a little more conservative with how many seasonals I, I can promise. And uh, generally, it makes it more difficult to be able to forecast when uh, a certain beer is going to be able to come out. Um, I have, uh, let me think here, I do have my Belgian IPA, um, that one I normally release in the fall, but because of COVID, I kind of had to push it around, I figured, you know, spring, summer is going to be the end. Uh, I will do another batch, uh, I think it's a beer called Minister's Prime, uh, it was an Earl Grey IPA, it was very well received, um, but I basically have to wait until that Belgian IPA is almost gone, so that I'm like, okay, it's going to be ready, um, because it was very frustrating to have several of my hoppy beers um, ready to go and in kegs, but you know it was months and months before I could get those in front of customers. And you know I'm sure you know that hoppy beers definitely have more of a shelf life um, for their optimum flavor. Yeah, um, still great beer, but uh, it was always very disappointing. Like, well, you know, if I got this out a couple months before, it would have been better, but not much you can really do about it. So yeah, um, I got you. Keeping that sense of timing. Um, is probably because it, it's shifted a lot throughout 2020 and will probably continue to shift throughout 2021 um, and just to know when uh, that you should make that beer to make sure that it gets in front of your customers that it's optimum uh, flavor. Um, I mean, those lagers and some of these longer term beers, you can be a lot more casual. Um, I mean, like we have a Belgian triple um, that we've had on for quite a while. We haven't, you know, we, we decided to put it in cans because it's going to be a while before we can get it on tap. And uh, I mean, a beer like that, it doesn't matter how old it is, it's going to be better and better for some reason. Yeah, um, yeah. 
yeah, we definitely have some stuff planned. Um, I got some seasonal sours. I think we're doing mango guava this year. Ooh, that um, sounds good. <laughs> I think our new round of barrel aged stuff. Um, so I have a kind of a mezcal goza I did this tequila barrel, and I'm pulling out. I was going to do a beer de garde um, for last summer. It's a Belgian lager, a strong lager that typically is at least the high point of summer. But I threw it in the bourbon barrels because I had to find somewhere to put it. Basically. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've got some seasonals coming up, and then uh, I'm also splitting it with um, uh, some of the regular stuff, like uh, making sure we have Oktoberfest. I'll probably do a smaller amount of wheat beer this year than normal, and uh, um, basically, uh, hopefully, things are picking up to an extent that I can go whole hog and put some more uh, seasonals down for the fall and the winter. But at this point, it's kind of like well, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, it's, I totally understand that. Uh... You know, it's got to be really hard to figure out what's going to go on. I mean, like we said, we're seeing light at the end of the t- uh, you know tunnel, but at the same time, uh, we're not necessarily getting close to to kind of herd immunity vaccination anytime soon, probably. And you know, it, it's kind of a wait and see. I, I feel for a lot of people, a, a lot of people probably are like, it must be too good to be true that we're opening up because of how long this is drawn out, of course, and and all of that. But uh, you know, obviously. I'm guessing more people are going to come out this summer, especially those who are vaccinated because uh, they probably want to get out and do things again. So I'm guessing you're looking forward to that, but uh, you know, when there's a lot of, there's a lot of places in Madison um, to go to. So what, why should people choose union corners? You know, what, what about union corners do you think uh, uh, should get people excited to come and, and hang out? I mean, uh, we've got a really nice place to drink. It's a nice patio. Um, it's dog friendly. Um, so it's a really enjoyable spot to come and try uh, a lot of different beers. I think right now I've got 16 on tap. So I try to keep a little something for everybody. Um, try to keep, you know, uh, people's horizons broadening uh, to try things maybe they're not typically used to. Um, another reason that it's really great is uh, there's a guy, Kevin Revolinsky, he's a travel guide writer. And he uh, coined this term for the area we are in Madison. He calls it the Beer Muda Triangle. Um, <laughs> mostly referring to the Atwood, um, Shanks Corners, um, and Starkweather area, Sassy area. Um, there are a lot of breweries and a lot of great craft beer bars. Um, so, you know, not only just to come see us, but um, we encourage people to check out the Newville Clinton area. Next door, we down the way. One Barrel's over there, Barley Pop, uh, Dexter's. I mean, there are plenty of great craft beer joints, um, and they're all just a short bike or walk away. Yeah, like get lost in the Bermuda Triangle, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, that's actually a good point. So, uh, sticking together and kind of having a community helps, and I'm guessing that helps with you guys. So, you know, is that something you kind of see everybody, all the different breweries and brew pubs and everything, everybody kind of coming together and helping each other out to, to you know, get business to everybody? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, joining some of these organizations and stuff to help cross-promote it. Um, but that, that's one of the nice things about the brewing industry. Generally, if there's something anybody needs or if there's a trouble, you know, it's easy to reach out to somebody. You know, if there was, if I was ever had problems with a piece of equipment or I had a vendor that I just wasn't really tired of, I can go to another brewer and say, hey, I'm looking for this. Do you have any suggestions? Or I'm having trouble with this. Do you have any suggestions? I mean, I think uh, we had a, a nitrogen, we have a mixed gas tap system. Uh, we had a nitrogen leak and uh, uh, I can't get any on the weekend. Um, just because our 
assume that generally speaking that the beer community is like that all over the place. Uh, but I know especially in Madison, um, it's the, the network community is very strong. Um, and you know, people are always willing to, to lend a hand, which I really appreciate. Yeah, man. So you're living the dream over there being that brewmaster, you know, it's gotta be pretty exciting to to be able to kind of do this. And, you know, the pandemic's kind of a weird time in there, but uh, I'm guessing you've really enjoyed uh, your time these last couple of years, just uh, being able to kind of run, run the beer show over there, huh? Well, yeah, it's a very satisfying job. I mean, uh, some days are very long. And to be honest, like, you know, you wear a lot of hats. Um, you know, I don't, uh, contrary to like the kitchen environment where typically you meet quite a few people, um, to be able to run that in peak times, brewing a little different, you know, you're pretty much on your own or with just a few people. Um, uh, and it's a, a lot of cleaning, a lot of it's just cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. Um, but, you know, the job is very rewarding. Customers have really expressed um, their appreciation, um, especially with a crew that's as short as mine is. Uh, you know, it'd be one thing if I drew all over the world and I had decades and decades of experience, you know, I would feel probably a little more like, well, yeah, yeah, I'm good at my job, but uh, to get into it, design your own place uh, as your first job and for it to be um, pretty, pretty well uh, successful, not many, uh, in my eyes, uh, serious mistakes made, um, you know, that's always very gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to definitely get back down to Madison again, uh, you know, hang out, grab some beers, uh, you know, it, uh, it, talk fantasy football, you know, maybe talk about how my team's beating your team, maybe. <laughs> I could <Yeah>. only dream. <laughs> you know, uh, every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I appreciate uh, you joining me this month, too, and talking, uh, you know, about this. Uh, you know, fantasy football is always fun. But just to talk about brewing, I'll definitely want to have you on again, talk about maybe some more technical stuff or things going on. It's always fun, uh, to, you know, to have someone with some expertise and, you know, just kind of shoot the shit about this stuff. It's fun. It's fun stuff, you know, uh, it, and this, it was definitely a blast getting back to you. We don't always get to, to do face-to-face -face stuff like this. You know, I know this is over Zoom. Maybe in the future we can, do, I'll do a podcast at Union Corners. I don't know. <laughs> do some live stuff. Uh, you, oh, yeah. could just, you could just bring me out some beers, keep the tab open, you know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, in my opinion, you know, who doesn't want to hear fantasy football advice uh, and brewing advice from a two-time champion over here, man? Like, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll let the, uh, let the listeners decide how good they, they advice is. Uh, I definitely am uh, more successful at brewing than I am in fantasy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyone in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, or anyone driving through or visiting, I recommend you go to the Union Corners Brewery you know, grab some, some good food and drink some, some of John Puchalski's famous delicious beers. Right. Uh, you know, and I'm not just saying that he knows that I don't just throw out compliments. You know, I tell him if his beers suck, that the, 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 his beers are really good. I enjoy them a lot, you know, thanks to everyone who's been listening and supporting the sun dried tomatoes podcast and YouTube channel. Thanks to everyone uh, who subscribed and downloaded the podcast and to those who have subscribed to my YouTube channel as well. Uh, this wouldn't be possible without all of your support, and I really do appreciate it. And once again, thanks to Pooch for joining me. It was definitely fun, and I will talk to you all later.